How large is your faith? How big is your faith? When you look through the Gospels, there's typically three types of faith that are described. The one is of people with no faith. That would be Pharisees, Sadducees, groups like that, where it's said they have no faith. The other is of little faith. The disciples, on a couple of occasions, are described as having little faith. And on two occasions in the New Testament, people are told or commended by Jesus for having great faith. They're told that their faith is great. So this morning, where would you fall on that spectrum? Would you be someone who has no faith? Someone who has little faith? Or someone who has great faith? Where would you fall on that spectrum, on that continuum? What I want to do today is I want to take a look at one of the passages where Jesus characterizes someone or describes them as having great faith. Faith is not just believing in God. Faith is believing God. Very different. James says even the demons believe in God and shudder. But we know that we are not just to believe in God. We are to believe God for everything he has said and for all that he has done. So if you have your Bibles, it'll be on the screen. I'll stutter step through it in a minute. But Matthew 15, beginning at verse 21, just to verse 28. Leaving that place, Matthew says, verse 21, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed. She's suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away. She keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was only sent, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. Jesus replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord. She said, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus said to her, woman, you have faith, great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. This is the word of the Lord. You read that passage, and immediately you might think, what happened? I mean, where is the Jesus that I know and love? What's going on here in this passage? I mean, in my doctrine, I don't believe Jesus can get up on the wrong side of the bed, but it sure seems like he did here. What's going on in this passage that Jesus first is silent when a woman is pleading for help and then calls her a dog? Says that it's not right for him to be working with her like this because she's a dog. What's going on in this passage? What's happening here? Well, I want to walk you through why she has great faith, and what Jesus is doing in the passage. At times when we read through passages of Scripture, they are complex. God's Word is complex at times. And we read them and go, how do I make sense of this? Well, note a few things. First, Jesus was leaving that place. What place was he leaving? He was leaving where he'd been ministering amongst the Jews. Much of Jesus' ministry is in Jewish territory amongst Jewish people. He's now leaving there. He's withdrawing to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He's just fed 5,000 in Jewish territory, walked on water, 
engaged the Pharisees in a whole theological debate on what is clean and unclean, and he's exhausted. And so he withdraws. We find that in Scripture. At times, Jesus withdraws to places to pray for solitude to get away. This account is also found in Mark, and it says that they went to a house and they shut the door. Their version of maybe Airbnb. And that the woman comes. Now, they're in Tyre and Sidon, or the region of. It doesn't say they're actually in the cities of, but they're in the region of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon, specifically Tyre, mentioned through the Old Testament on a number of occasions as one of the places where it's the enemy of God's people. This is now Gentile territory, no longer Jewish soil. And so Jesus has withdrawn from the Jewish territory, from Israel, into Gentile territory. And he's somewhere between Tyre and Sidon. They're about 20 miles apart uh, from each other. And Tyre in the Old Testament is cursed. It's one of the places where Baal worship is predominant. It's actually the center of Baal worship. It's where Jezebel is born. And so Tyre is a place that's cursed and Jesus withdraws there. The text here in Matthew says a Canaanite woman comes. In, in Mark, it tells us that she's, she's a, a Syrophoenician. What is that? Well, Phoenicia was a city. Syria was a province that the Romans occupied. So when Phoenicia was taken over, when the Greek world, she's a Greek, it tells us in Mark, when the Greek world was taken over by the Romans, right? Alexander the Great, the Greek, led his armies to conquer most of the world, and the Romans conquered the Greeks. When that occurred... Syria became, was one of the Romans' provinces that were there, um, and it took over Phoenicia. And so she's now a Syro-Phoenician. She's a Greek woman who's now a Roman citizen, and she's from Canaanite ancestry. They were the worst enemies of the Jewish people. They were the people that worshipped Baal and brought Baal worship to the Israelites. They were the ones that weren't supposed to continue living. And yet, though Canaanite people wouldn't have lived in that day, Jesus is saying, or Matthew's letting us know, that this is a woman who had Canaanite ancestry and is a Syrophoenician. She's a Greek living under Roman rule as a Roman. And she comes to Jesus, to that vicinity, and she's crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed, suffering terribly. Note, note she knows a couple of things. We don't know that she's ever had an encounter with Jesus before, but she calls him Lord. She knows as she's making this request that he's able to do something about her daughter's condition. He's actually able to do something. When she uses the term Lord, probably not in the full sense, not understanding that he's God the Son, but understanding he's powerful. Having heard stories of his healings and of his miracles, having heard of his teachings, she comes. But she knows more than that. In fact, she knows more than most. She calls him son of David. She not only believes that he's able to heal her daughter and free her from the demonization that she's experiencing, he, she also believes that he is the son of David. He is the Messiah. That that's who he is. And so she cries out. I mean, parents here today, if your child was demonized, some of you think they are... But if they actually were, if it was identified that they were demonized, right? If your child was critically ill in some way, to what extent would you go to what would you do to see your child healed? I imagine at this point she's tried almost everything. And now 
She's heard of Jesus and he's in the region and she comes to him desperate for help. She's demon-possessed, suffering terribly. And Jesus says nothing. He's just silent. He doesn't say a word. What? Here's a mom pleading, her heart bleeding out in front of Jesus, and he says nothing? He's just going to be silent? Why? Well, there's probably a couple of reasons for it. He's testing her faith. We see this through the Gospels. I'll get to this in a moment. But he's testing her faith. Right? It's, it's known in Scripture as like a reversal of expectation. One of the terms that we use. Where Jesus is doing something that seems contrary to what you think he'd be doing. The rich, rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, Good teacher. And Jesus says, Why do you call me good? The rich young ruler explains that he's been good. And so he deserves to inherit eternal life. Jesus says, One thing you lack. Sell everything you've got. Give it to the poor, and then you can come and follow me. He offers the rich young ruler the opportunity to be the 13th disciple. Because the rich young ruler isn't good. That's the whole point of Jesus' encounter with him. Good teacher, why do you call me good? Right? They talk about what it means to have eternal life. You need to keep the commandments. The young man says, I've kept them all completely since I was a boy. Word of God says Jesus loved him. Doesn't say he rebuked him in that moment. Loved him, though he knew he wouldn't have kept all the commandments since he was a boy. And then Jesus said to him, well, go, sell everything you have, give it to the poor. It's the one thing you lack and follow me. Now, Jesus doesn't want him to do anything to be saved because you can't do anything to be saved. Jesus wants that rich young ruler in that moment to recognize he's not good. That's the whole point of that. I'm not good and I need someone else's goodness. You can think of this in terms of reversal expectation when it comes to the good Samaritan. Jesus tells a parable. Right? After being asked, who is my neighbor? And Jesus reverses the whole thing. A Samaritan becomes the hero in the story. And the question isn't, who is my neighbor? That's the box that the legal expert wants to put Jesus into. Tell me who's in and who's out, who I should love and who I shouldn't love. Jesus reverses the whole thing and says, are you a neighbor? Are you a neighbor? Lazarus. He learns that Lazarus is sick. He's good friends with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. He's healed lots of people. They've seen him heal lots of people. He waits for days until he goes to see Lazarus. Lazarus is dead and in the tomb for four days. Why? I mean, when he arrives, what do they say to him? Had you been here, my brother would not have died. You could have healed him. And yet Jesus wants to show them something even greater. That's what's going on here. Jesus has a lesson for the disciples to learn. And he wants to test her faith. He wants to test her faith. You see, the disciples show up and say, she's just bugging us, send her away. Why is she here? Why is she doing this? I mean, we came here for recluse. We came here to withdraw. We came here for retreat. Jesus, she's bugging our retreat. She's bothering our retreat. Send her away. Get rid of the woman. She doesn't deserve to be here. She's just crying out after us because they misunderstood the mission of Israel. You see, Israel started to believe that God was simply going to save them. And they misunderstood that they were a means to an end. God was saving Israel 
to be a light to the nations. Israel was God's means through which the world would be saved. The Messiah's promise to God's people, covenanted with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, David, covenants that are given to God's people. And as those covenants are made, God promises to look after his people, but always to be light for another. He promises to Abraham that Abraham, through his seed, all nations will be blessed. All nations will be blessed. He calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, that pagan Gentile city, to declare repentance upon them and salvation for him. In Isaiah 42, we're told that this suffering servant will be a light to the nations. And in Psalm 87, we read these words, Glorious things are said of you, city of God. Our record, Rahab, which is a word for Egypt, Babylon, among those who acknowledge me, Philistira too, Tyre, along with Cush, and they will say, this one was born in Zion. Even in the Old Testament, there was always promise that one day Egyptians and Babylonians and people from Tyre, where Jesus is right now in that vicinity, and Cush will be saved, that they will acknowledge me, God says, and say, this one was born in Zion. Where the disciples treat her as a dog, as a Gentile, and say she should just go away. So Jesus answered. Now, who does he answer? He answers the disciples who just said she should go away. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And so the woman comes and kneels before him. Lord, help me, she says. And Jesus replies, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. So here Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. He said that before. We find that in Matthew 10, verse 5. The 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any towns of the Samaritans. Rather, go to the lost sheep of Israel. Go there first. This shouldn't surprise us. God's whole plan was first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. It's what God was doing from the very beginning, calling people to himself. In fact, if you wanted to know Yahweh, if you wanted to follow him, you became a Jew. You became a Jew religiously. You converted to Judaism. And here in this point, in this part, God then promises to the Jewish people the Messiah. God's word is given to the Jewish people. And it was always to be a light to the Gentiles that through God's work in the Jewish people, the Gentiles would see the coming of the Messiah Christ. It's why Paul, even in Romans, as he's talking, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, verse 16. It is the power of God. It brings salvation to anyone who believes, first for the Jew, then to the Gentile. And so God's procedure was always, I'm saving a group of people from the Jewish nation. And then I will save the Gentiles. And so here in Matthew 10, we find at first Jesus saying, hey, don't go into the Gentiles or to the Samaritans. Rather, go to the lost sheep of Israel. That's go to those who are, are, are Jewish. Let them know I'm here. Let them know the Messiah is here. Let them know that the Christ has come. So he says to the guys, I've only come to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, they, they've already heard, the disciples have already heard 
that Jesus has said that he's going to cause them to be a witness. Later on in Matthew 10, this is later on in the slides, I'm going to turn to it now. Matthew 10, verse 18, Jesus says, on account, so the same passage, you will, on, on my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. So Jesus already begins to speak of his witness to the Gentiles. So here's what's going on. Jesus wants the disciples to understand that his mission is beyond just the Jewish people, though it starts there. Matthew is writing to the Jewish audience. But all through the Gospel of Matthew, you see the hope for the Gentiles emerging. We looked at that last Sunday, very beginning of Matthew, who shows up? The Magi from the East. They show up. Ma Matthew writes that into his Gospel to let everyone know that this Gospel is not just for the Jewish people, the shepherds who came. Simeon and Anna who were at the temple. This Gospel is also for the Gentiles. And there's more than that because it's not just for the poor. Shepherds would have been working class poor. It's also for the wealthy. These magi had wealth with them. And they gave some of that wealth to Jesus, which allowed Joseph to flee to Egypt. I looked at that last week. You have in Matthew 8, the centurion coming to Jesus. A centurion, a Roman soldier, with a squadron under him, comes to Jesus and says, my servant is paralyzed and dying. He's suffering greatly. Would you heal him? And Jesus says, shall I come? And he says, you don't need to come. He says, you don't need to come because I know I'm a man with authority, under a man with authority, with men under my authority. And he says, I can say a command, go do this and go do that, and those men and go do whatever I ask. He says, I know, Jesus, you can just say that my servant be healed and he'll be healed. You don't need to come. I'm unworthy to even have you come to my house. And Jesus says, such Faith I've never seen in all of Israel. In fact, he actually calls it great faith. It's the second time in Scripture where you see great faith. Both times in Scripture, in the Gospels, when Jesus says of people that they have great faith, it's both, on both occurrences, it's of who? Gentiles. Is that not fascinating? Both of times it's of Gentiles. And Jesus heals the servant. It doesn't even need to go there. So he wants to see if the disciples get it. Well, get what? Well, Jesus had just been teaching them. He just engaged with the Pharisees about what is clean and unclean, what is ritually clean and unclean. And they just assume that all of the Gentiles are unclean. And Jesus, in that encounter, just a few verses before, is trying to explain that the categories they have are incorrect. They're wrong. That these aren't categories, but the disciples don't get it. Peter walked on water. They had just left Jesus. Again, this is just prior to this encounter. The disciples are rowing across the lake. It's late. Jesus stays on the mountainside to pray, and then he goes out. And as he's going out, he's walking on the water. They think it's a ghost. He cries out and says, it is I. Don't be afraid. And Peter says, tell me to come. And Jesus says, come. And Peter starts to walk on the water. He sees the wind. The wind obviously would carry a wave. Peter's terrified, begins to sink. He cries out, Lord, help me. Jesus grabs his hand and says he has little faith. Oh, you have little faith. If he has little faith, I mean, Peter got out of the boat to walk on water. If he has little faith, how small is the faith of the disciples who were still in the boat? I mean, how many of us would have actually gotten out of the boat? We can knock Peter in this text. 
But Peter gets out of the boat. And right now what Jesus wants to contrast for the disciples is that there's someone you're meeting who has great faith. And I want you to know who she is. And I'm going to put her to the test. And I want you to see what my kingdom's about. Because my mission isn't just for the Jews, it's also for the Gentiles. So Jesus says to her, it is not right to take your children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master tables. She understands. She knows who she is. Three times in this text, in a dialogue, she calls him Lord. You are the Lord. You are the Lord. You are the Lord. And though she may not understand the full terminology of what it means that he is God the Son, she knows you can do something about my little girl. Mark calls her a little girl. My little girl who's been demonized. I know you have that kind of authority and power. And she calls him Son of David. I know you're the Messiah. I know you're the promised one. I know you're the Christ, the anointed one. That's what this woman knows. And this is what she knows. That any crumb that comes from the table of the son of David, the Messiah, the Lord, any crumb that comes from him is greater than any feast at any other banquet. And she has great faith. Is that not good news? Even the crumbs that fall from his table are greater than the bounty at any other banquet, are greater than the bounty of pleasure, are greater than the bounty of success, are greater than the bounty of academic excellence, are greater than the bounty of any other way you try to fulfill yourself, popularity, you name it. His crumbs are greater than the bounty of any other banquet. And he says, you have great faith because you understand who I am and you understand what I offer. And at that very moment, her daughter was healed. Really quickly, I uh, met with three of the Karen guys this week met with Daniel, met with Wilson, met with Tune. And on the 22nd of January, I'll preach in their service and I'll baptize the three of them. I'd encourage you to, some of you to come to the baptismal service. It's been amazing to watch God work in these young men's lives. And, and there'll be, I think that's 15 or 16 of the young people from the Koran congregation that we'll have now baptized in the last couple of years. And as God is at work in their lives and I listen to the testimony of what God has done, Close was there with me, right? Because we want to be able to hear them express what God has done in their lives. Tune just told his story, right? I've asked him permission to share it. And he said, if God can use my story in anyone's life to encourage them, of course. But when he was 15, one of his friends, Sockley, you remember this, committed suicide, ended his life. I took Sockley's funeral. And Tune says that just spiraled him into a depression. And it spiraled him into a depression and state of anxiety at 15 that he turned to substances and became addicted. And he didn't know where else to turn. He didn't know where else to go. He said, I became the black sheep of my family. And as he began to tell his story, he told his story of how he watched God save Ari, his older brother. I remember when Ari came to me, Ari and Maggie, wanted me to marry them, but they were living here. They had a son. And I said, I said, we will not want me to baptize them so they could get married. Because in their tradition, you need to be baptized to be married. And we, we caught on to that years too late, but we caught on to it. 
We're like, okay, we're not willing to baptize you to get married. We're willing to baptize you if you know Jesus. And in a couple of meetings, God had saved them. And he moved out and went back and forth to look after his son with Maggie. And then I married them, and I baptized them, and then married them. And, and God was just powerfully at work in their lives. And then God grabbed a hold of his younger brother, Samson. And Tune just talked about how he, he well, Tune's older brother, Samson, Ari's younger brother, just talked about what that looked like and the powerful witness that was there. And, and Tune said, in all of this, my grandfather, who was a man of great faith, never gave up on me. He prayed for me diligently. He would have me over. I lived more with him than my own family because of how much of a disaster I was. And then he said, my grandfather died. About five months ago, his grandfather died, five or six. And, and he said, when his grandfather died, it so spoke to him about his faith and his love for Jesus that within a few days, he gave his life to Christ and his addictions were gone and he was freed from that. And he said, I've learned, I've learned there's nothing better than Jesus. There's nothing more satisfying. There's nothing greater. He said, I want everyone to know what I found, that there's nothing like Jesus. There's nothing like him. That's exactly what this woman from Canaanite ancestry has learned. Somehow, somehow in her life, she's heard enough about Jesus that she knows he's the son of David. She knows he's the Lord. And she knows his crumbs are greater than any other bounty she could have. Well, Jesus stays in Gentile territory. If we kept reading the text, you see this in Mark as well. He heals a number of people. No teachings are mentioned. That's not to say he didn't teach. Jesus taught wherever he went. And then he feeds the 4,000. You know there's two feedings in the Bible, right? The feeding of the 5,000 that's mentioned in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all in Jewish territory. The feeding of the 4,000 that's only mentioned in Matthew and in Mark, and it's in Gentile territory. And Jesus now is showing his disciples who thought that the Gentiles were unclean and unable to enter into the promised kingdom except by way of Jewish thinking Jesus is showing them that you don't need to move from a Gentile to a Jew to be able to follow Jesus. He's willing to welcome Gentiles and Jewish people. He's willing to welcome everyone into his kingdom. And so as Jesus begins to heal, and you see that he moves kind of between Tyre and Sidon um, and then to the Decapolis, and as he's moving in that region and as he's there and as he's sharing uh, faith with people and healing and feeding the 4,000 there. The statement of feeding the 4,000 in Gentile territory is to say that just as I am the bread of life for all the Jewish people, I am the bread of life for all of the Gentile people. And he comes to seek and save the lost. So I'll, I'll close with this. There are people that Jesus encounters that have no faith. They lay along to kill him. And eventually they crucify him. Jesus hangs out with his disciples at this point for probably a couple of years. They've watched him cast out demons before miracles. They've heard him teach and stump the Pharisees and Sadducees and experts in the law. And he says, you have little faith. And he meets a woman of Canaanite ancestry who knows that the crumbs from the son of David's table, the Lord's table, is better than the bounty from any feast she could attend. And he says, you have great faith. Great faith. What is your faith like today as we move into 2023? Maybe our prayer this morning needs to be, God, give me faith. God, give me faith.
Not just faith like the disciples, but God, faith like a Canaanite woman who believed you were the son of David, the Lord, who threw herself at you persistently and showed everyone that her faith was great. Her faith was humble, broken, reverent, persistent. And that very moment, Jesus freed her daughter. That's great faith. Would you pray with me? We thank you for this encounter, Lord Jesus. We're amazed at your grace and how you would choose to test faith like this, to demonstrate to the disciples your love for the Gentiles that they would eventually go and share the gospel with. To show this woman, as you test her faith, how great her faith was. And to commend her in a way that you commended few people. God, thank you for your kind of salvation that brings in people from every language and custom and culture and tribe. And your grace that is that great. We ask as we now celebrate a table that reminds us of your broken body and your shed blood that you'd be with us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jason, you guys can come up. And as we close off our service with a couple of songs, we're also going to celebrate communion. Communion is given to us by our Lord, the bread representing his body, the juice representing his blood, his body broken for us on the cross, his blood shed for us on the cross. And in the Gospel of Matthew, the 26th chapter, Jesus says these words, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for their forgiveness of sins. He takes two simple elements, bread and wine, and he says, every time you're together as believers, and every time you have bread and you break it, remember me. And every time you're together as believers and every time you have wine, remember me. That's what he tells them to do. That every time you gather for these meals, they had this in a meal, and you're gathering, and we now celebrate it in this context typically. But every time you're gathering with believers and you're breaking bread and you're pouring wine, Jesus says, remember me. Celebrate who I am and what I've done for you. Celebrate your faith in me. That's what we celebrate today, our faith in him, our faith that says that his broken body and shed blood is enough to save. Is that not good news? Enough to save us, that his accomplished work is enough. This table, you don't need to be a member of James North Baptist Church to celebrate this table, but you do need to be someone who God has saved, someone who said, my faith has been put in Jesus. I, I've trusted him. I know I needed him, just like the Syrophoenician woman who knew the only one that could help her was Jesus. Now, if that's you today, if you've crossed that line of faith, we invite you to take one of these cups as our leaders pass this out and to celebrate who Jesus is. If you're not a believer today, we encourage you to take the basket and pass it to the person next to you so that it can make its way around the room. But if you are, we invite you to take this basket and to celebrate Jesus, our Savior. I'm going to pray, and after I pray, our leaders are going to come up, and we're going to distribute the cup that has the bread in it. It's in the top part of it, if you haven't done this with us before. And, uh, and as Jason leads us in worship and song, at some point during the song, as you, Sophia, led, you're welcome to take the cup and the bread and celebrate Jesus and the faith he's granted you in him. Let me pray. We thank you, Jesus, for your 
broken body and for your shed blood granted to us. And we thank you for your immense love for us given to us. We pray, O oh God, that this day as we celebrate your shed blood and broken body and your accomplished work on our behalf, that God, we thank you for the faith you've granted us in you. And God, we just say, increase our faith. Help us not just to believe in you, but to believe you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.